All right, folks, we are just we are live on the international camera right now, and we're just waiting for the other camera. So happy for you that you're here with us today on the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we've got a fantastic show for you today. We are just broadcasting live right now on KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com. Welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we have a fantastic show for you today, a really important show. Before we get into the show, I want to thank my sponsor, uh, the sponsor of the council, REMAX Alliance. REMAX Alliance, if you want to buy a home in Colorado, you need to go to these guys. I know them personally. Go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. Uh, you want to buy your home, sell at home, uh, these are the people to go to. They're the best in the state, and uh, I know them personally. Tell them I sent you that you were coming and you heard this on the council, and they will take care of you. So REMAX Alliance, that's homesincolorado.com, homesincolorado.com. Uh, today's show is uh, uh, very important to me, uh, and uh, I really want to talk about the opioid crisis. And it's been affecting our country for a long time. Uh, the opioid crisis is the deadliest drug crisis in American history. There are, these are some of the sobering statistics from the Department of Health and Human Services. And this was in 2016. 116 people died every day from the opioid-related drug overdoses. 11.5 million people misused prescription opioids. 42,249 people died from overdosing on opioids. 170,000 people used heroin for the first time. 2.1 million people had an opioid use disorder. 948,000 people tried heroin and used it. 2.1 million people misused prescription opioids for the first time. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, this epidemic is touching all of us. It's no longer just the homeless addict that's living on the streets that's, uh, you know, shooting up heroin, an object of derision for most of, of the society. But now it, it's infiltrated our families, our communities, our places of business. It's mothers, it's fathers, it's lawyers, it's doctors, it's teachers, it's military members, it's teenagers, it's the elderly. It's no longer just the street addict we are talking about, it's right in front of us. 75% of heroin addicts used prescription opioids before turning to heroin, which are, comes in the form of Oxycontin, Percocet, and Vicodin. Once you become addicted, you will do anything to get it. And when it gets too expensive to purchase the prescription drugs, suddenly the illegal drugs don't seem so bad anymore. Prescription drugs have taken the lives of some of our most favorite celebrities, like Heath Ledger and Michael Jackson, and they are destroying families all across this country. The United States represents about 5% of the world population, and yet we consume 75% of the world's prescription drugs. And many of these drugs are really dangerous, and they're deadly. How in the world did this happen? How did we let this happen? Well, first, let me explain to you what an opioid is. It's a class of drugs that interact with the opioid receptors 
on nerve cells in the body and the brain. And they regulate pain and affect the brain's reward or pleasure system, which can, add the, can have the added effect of getting someone high. They're present, but no one's really home, and they're feeling really good. And this is what makes opioids such a powerful painkiller. And it's also extremely addictive. Now, the chemical makeup of opiates, such as codeine, oxycontin, Vicodin, and morphine, are all directly or synthetically derived from the unripe seed pods of opium poppy. Guess what else is made from the poppy? Heroin. By the way, the chemical makeup of Adderall and Ritalin is made of the same stuff as meth. Our doctors, whether consciously or unconsciously aware of it, have become legalized drug dealers as the pharmaceutical companies push these quick, easy cures for pain to the mass, and they started this in the early 1990s. In the 1990s, pain management became a hot topic. And in 1996, Purdue Pharma released OxyContin, an opioid painkiller which could be used not only for people suffering from cancer or coming out of surgery, but for all kinds of different pains like arthritis, toothaches, or your backache. And they pushed this miracle drug hard on all the doctors. And they claimed, they used this little article that uh, came out in like the early 1980s that said, that claimed that less than 1% of people would become addicted to opioids. I mean, I guess they forgot what the wonder drug called heroin, another opiate which was released in 1898 to cover virtually the same kind of pain bodily reactions and conditions and was made illegal in 1924 because of the massive addictions it was creating. But I digress. Purdue Pharma, when they released, uh, released OxyContin, published uplifting stories of people who used it. They actually had doctors on the payroll who talked about pseudo-addiction, which Dr. Alan Spanos, who is one of their doctors, described this phenomenon as, and I quote, when a patient is looking like a drug addict because they're pursuing pain relief. It's relief-seeking behavior mistaken as drug addiction. <laughs> it's absurd. By 2000, doctors prescribed nearly 6 million prescriptions per year of OxyContin. Sales of this quick, easy, pain-cure drug was more than Viagra. But the evidence started to pile up. And over the next decade, a growing number of people became dependent upon, uh, excuse me, became dependent upon these drugs. And for many, what started out as pills became a heroin addiction. The drug companies were wrong. The promises that they had made and the assurances that they gave to the medical community that patients would not become addicted to opioid pain relievers was a lie. And they knew it. And in 2007, Purdue Pharma admitted responsibility of having deceived the government, the medical community, and the public consumer about the addictiveness of the opioids in their products, and paid $634 million in fines for lying to the public. Another pharma business, Cephalon, paid 
$444 million in a settlement for over-marketing their drugs. But now for a multi-billion dollar industry, this was simply the cost of doing business. In fact, the big winners in this national epidemic that is tearing apart the lives of thousands of families across this nation are the pharmaceutical companies, the drug dealers. In the past 10 years, the top 11 pharma companies have made $711 billion. $711 billion. Now, there's no question that pharmacology and the pharmaceutical companies have done some incredible things in the past. They have rid the world of many diseases like polio and smallpox and the measles and are helping to eradicate diseases like AIDS. However, this crisis and the promise of cheap, quick, easy pain solutions put us in this horrible mess, this disastrous mess. And though they may not be 100% responsible, they do bear significant blame for this greedy, reckless behavior which has created this massive public health crisis. Now, unfortunately, the pharmaceutical companies have become drug pushers. You just watch your television late at night and see how many advertisements you find celebrating the new miracle drug to cure the latest disease. Diseases that we've never even heard of before. We've never had these diseases before. Why? Sadly, I think it's because it's to get the consumer to buy what the company is offering them. Do you have these symptoms? Oh, oh wait, you must have itchy leg syndrome. And, and you need to take this. But if you, you need to stop taking it if you feel sad or weak or have diarrhea or have headaches or if you're vomiting, you suddenly have depression or suicidal thoughts. If you have any of these, see a doctor if you have any of these symptoms. So they can prescribe other drugs to combat these new side effects that are affecting your health. It's crazy. But we bought into it. And pharmaceutical companies have the vested interest to make their stockholders happy. And thus they're not in the business of health and healing, but in the business of disease maintenance and symptom management. Now, in 2014, the problem grew even worse because a new potent synthetic opioid called fentanyl began entering the drug supply in large amounts. Fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin. 50. It's cheaper to make and is rapidly spreading across the United States. Families are being devastated by this, by the entire opioid epidemic. And the crisis is most severe in the Midwest, Appalachia, and New England, but it's a national problem. Families not only have to deal with a child who's now an addict, but with the shame that comes with it. Here's some statistics. In Vermont, children entering the custody of the child protection system grew by 40% between 2013 and 2016. In West Virginia, the number of children in foster care grew by 24% between 2012 and 2016. In Ohio, they've seen a 19% increase in children going to the care of relatives or foster homes since 2010. 
and sadly newborns are going through withdrawals because both parents had abused opioids. One story I found in my research talked about a young boy, a preschooler, who was in the custody of his uh, addicted father. The father relapsed and started using again. This child described to his preschool teacher how a friend of his dad would tie a rubber band around his arm, use a spoon, and then he would be asleep, as he would say. It took 18 months to get this little boy to his foster parents. This is just one story of many. Many of these children of addicted parents are severely traumatized as a result, suffering from PTSD, mania, aggression, and other emotional and psychological disturbances. And why has this gotten worse? Well, there are three main reasons. It's decades of opioid overprescription, the influx of cheap heroin, and the emergence of fentanyl. Fortunately, there are some things we can do to help end this crisis now. First, we need to start using non-opioid practices and alternatives for ways to heal, such as meditation, body work, and energy healing. Second, we need to control the distribution of prescription opioids. That's obvious. Third, we need to expand access to medical medication for treatment. And fourth, we need to make uh, naloxone, an overdose antidote, more accessible. In fact, many first responders are now trained to use naloxone because of the large number of overdoses they are now called upon to do. It's important that even parents of addicts also should be trained in the administration of naloxone. Another effective method to save opioid addicts is medication-assisted treatment. It does involve three drugs to treat the opioid addiction. Naltrexone, which blocks the brain's opioid receptors, methadone, and buprenorphine, both of which prevent pain withdrawal symptoms and suppress drug cravings. And these are only to be administered in clinics by authorized physicians because these drugs are highly regulated by the DEA. According to Dr. Sarah Wakeman, who is a substance abuse specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital. All these short-term residential 14 to 20-day, 28-day rehab programs are ineffective for opioid abuse, as the relapse rate is almost 100%. We have to look at this differently, and she recommends counseling and monitoring by a physician. And as a culture, we need to change our understanding of addiction. Addiction means to be enslaved to. What happens in addiction is that the neural pathways of the brain have changed. It's a brain illness, not a mental illness which only stigmatizes the disease. Now, most addicts are suffering from deep pain and hopelessness and they are really hurting inside. The opioid epidemic is a symptom of a much larger pain. The pain of despair, helplessness, depression, loneliness, and lack of purpose. 
It's an emotional pain that stems from a lack of love and connection and value. Addiction is not a criminal act. What the pharmaceutical companies did, that is. No pill can fix this. Our basic human need for significance, love, and connection can never be met with chemicals or pharmacology, ever. We must cut the supply and cut the demand. And this crisis requires us to look deeply within us and what is truly important. The human being is important. That's what matters. And we must work through this challenge together. We must build our human connections and communicate with and through the heart. We must look with empathy at our addicts and help them to become better and create a culture of caring where service, coaching, mentoring are used to assist these individuals to recover the lives they were always meant to live. We must, as a society, change our ways of thinking. And today on this show, on the council, we are going to hear the story of a, one of the most courageous mothers and women that I know, uh, who, and who's reaching out to the community and uh, set up an organization to help families to heal, to grieve, and recover from the loss of their child due to the epidemic infecting our nation. And it is with great respect and honor that I want to humbly introduce Dina Hart. Hi, Charlie. Thank you. Oh, you're well. Thank you, Dina, for coming on the show and, and gracing us with your presence here and, and being able to share uh, your experience, uh, your firsthand experience of this, uh, this tragedy that's coming and affecting our nation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, to the audience, uh, a little about what happened and, and your background and... Mm -hmm. and sure. Um, I, I love everything you said and it, it's so accurate, but um, in December 2009, I lost my oldest son, Jeff. Um, he had an accidental drug overdose. Um, he had rhinoplasty surgery, and he was prescribed the opioid oxycontin, oxycodone, mm -hmm. uh, for a painkiller, and he got addicted. Mm. Um, I didn't have the typical signs with him. He was very athletic. He, you know, took care of himself, so I didn't really have any of the warning signs that you hear typically, you know, um, he never stole from me. I never saw anything out of the house missing. Um, he didn't get severely skinny or dark, dark circles under his eyes. So I really had no idea mm -hmm. for, for quite a while. Um, he came to me and told me um, what he was doing, that he got addicted to the painkillers. And so we went for help. Mm -hmm. um, and it really wasn't very beneficial. We went to counselors. We... Um, you know, we, we tried everything we could. Um, I spent two full days trying to get him into rehabs. Everybody's booked. They're six weeks out. They're eight weeks out. Um, you know, there just has to be a better way in our country to help people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can't wait eight weeks because they won't be here. Yeah. Um, and when they need help, they need help right away. They do. They need help you know, right away so, to be able yeah, to. Yeah, they really do. And, you know, can you, what was your relationship like with Jeff? You know, is it, uh, we can tell the, can you tell the audience who Jeff was and the kind of man? Because I, I love Jeff. He was, <laughs> he was great. Thank you. He was such a, a bright and, and charming and uh, 
intelligent, he was a go-getter, he really had a, such a, a, a bright, promising outlook on life. And Thank you. Yes, he did. He was very, um, very well-liked and loved by so many. Yeah. He, you'd meet him for the first time, and people could carry on a hour or two conversation with him and walk away feeling like they'd known him for a long time. Yeah. Um, he just had a special way about him. He truly loved his family and his friends, and if anybody was in, ever needed his help, he would climb mountains to get there, mm -hmm. just just to help people. Mm -hmm. um, that's who he was. Um, Fun-loving, a little mischievous, but um, he was never out to really hurt anybody unless they hurt his family or friends. You know, he was he was a great protector. Um, he and I had a very close relationship. Um, I mean, I do with my younger son too, but. Uh, Jeff and I just had almost a connection to the heart. That, that's the only way to put it. Um, we we got along just very very well. We had our arguments like any you know mm -hmm. you know parent child had, but um, he was just a love. He you know just had a very sensitive side to him, even though you wouldn't know it. Mm -hmm. He he had a very sensitive side to him. So um, it was just heartbreaking you know we lose all these good people and like you said nobody's immune to it you no. know it affects Hollywood um, doesn't matter how much money you have what status you are it's just affecting way too many people and in our children they're of any age you know Jeff mm -hmm. was 24 when he passed away just coming into adulthood on who he who he was starting to become mm -hmm. so um, I often think what would he be today because mm -hmm. he's pretty magnificent at 24 mm -hmm. so what would he be today at 33 well and it's just so the, the access for people being able to get these prescription drugs is incredible I mean there was uh, I've heard stories uh, or, or, of like uh, pill dispensaries in mm -hmm. Florida where they could get uh, all these kinds of drugs so quickly and easily and they could yeah. they were just dispensing these things because these the way they had marketed and sold the drug, mm -hmm. um, and it started with oxycontin, right. um, was that it's this uh, this this pain cure. It's gonna it's easy. Nobody gets addicted to it, and so they right. were selling it like candy. Right. And uh, you know the doctors who have an obligation um, with the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. Uh, you all took that, doctors, mm -hmm. uh, and you know they were misinformed by get, sending that. Right. And so the easy access, and it, you take just a little, some of those pills, just a little bit, all of a sudden you're feeling good, and, and it, it's so easy to become addicted mm -hmm. to these things. Mm -hmm. It is. That's, that's the problem is it's highly, highly addictive, mm -hmm. highly addictive. And that's why we have such a crisis going on because it's affecting everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not, and even though when uh, you become addicted to it, you, you can't rationalize your way out of that. No. You can't, you, you can, you know that uh, it's, that what you're doing is probably harming you on some mm -hmm. level, but you can't stop yourself. Right. You just, it's a, it's a craving that gets so deep that it's the, this body that needs it in order to, because it, it wants it so much that it bypasses all rationality and reason. It does. It absolutely does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, you set up uh, the uh, foundation, mm -hmm. and it's called the Jeffrey R. Hart Foundation uh, in honor of your son. Mm -hmm. And can you, uh, could you share with the audience uh, a little bit about uh, why uh, uh, 
you set up this foundation and what its mission is? Sure, thank you. I'd love to. Um, first of all, well, I, I set it up in honor of my son, as you said, and in honor of um, other parents, child, or children who are not here anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to honor our children. Um, as a culture, we're really not taught what to do with death. We're not taught how to grieve. We really don't, I don't feel as a culture that we're very good at it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you go through the services, the funeral, whatever. Afterwards, we're expected just to maintain and go back to work and have our normal life back. It's not that easy and you'll never have your life back. There's such a huge piece missing. Um, when you lose a child, your life turns upside down. You're devastated. You can't function. You couldn't. For me, I personally, just to do simple daily tasks took me all day, and I could only do just a couple of them. Yeah. And before I knew it, it was five, six o'clock at night, and I was like, "Wow, it took me seven hours to balance my checkbook, which should have been a twenty-minute thing." You know, I mean, just your whole life changes. You can't think. You can't. Um, you know, you just can't even eat. You just the, the brain fog is unbelievable. Um, they're just, I want to be more of a resource to help families, help them grieve in the right way without popping a pill mm -hmm. to haze over the grief. Um, we need to learn to deal with it. Um, and it's now part of our life, mm -hmm. unfortunately. We now belong to a club we never wanted to belong to before. Um, but I don't think we need, I don't think it's healthy to mask um, the grief process through medication. I think it's healthy to, you know, go to counseling, do some holistic treatment, get some acupuncture, get massages, kind of baby yourself, pamper yourself. We don't want to. I didn't care if I lived or died, to be honest with you. Um, but you, by the grace of God, you pull yourself up um, with friends were amazing. They got me through um, the darkest days. Uh, my fiance, Greg, he was a tremendous, tremendous rock for me. Um, family, we all just have to pull together. Mm -hmm. You know, the cliches don't help. No, they, they really don't. don't. <laughs> I mean, I think people mean well, but you know, don't overthink it. Just if you don't know what to say to somebody, just say, I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry for your loss simple as that yeah. because sometimes the <coughs> get over it move on is so hurtful and so painful to hear oh my god yes. that you know it's like you take one of your children and forget that they exist yeah. you can't do that no. you really can't well and then i think so a lot a lot of times people don't understand what how do you what do you say how do you mm -hmm. address that and being able to uh comfort the loss of mm -hmm. uh, of uh, a mother who's lost her Right. I, mean, I can't even imagine the pain. Yeah. And, and the dissociation, that's so traumatic. Right. Uh, for a, a family member to experience that and the dissociation that happens. How long did it take you to recover from this grieving process? Um, I don't think I fully recovered. I don't think I ever will, to be honest with you. I think yeah. grieving will be the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, I do look back just even two years ago. I do feel the brain fog has lifted more so. Mm -hmm. um, I can think a little bit more clearly. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, it's a new way of life. Um, and I don't mind grieving now. Yeah. Um, I, 
Jeff was part of my life. He always will be. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't forget that. So I'm okay with it. I, you know, if I was curled up in a corner, not functioning, then that would be a different story. But um, I just feel part of this foundation is we have to get it out there to help people mm -hmm. and what to say. Because, like you said, people are at a loss. Well, what do we do? What, you know, mm -hmm. you call somebody, what do you need? We don't even know what we need, let alone trying to express it to someone else. Yeah. Well, and I think so many times we forget <clears throat> that grieving is a natural process. And it, we, it's, we are biologically wired to grieve uh, loss and right. to mourn. Right. And for our culture, you know, we have, th we're, we're taught that we're not supposed to feel bad. We're not right. supposed to feel any of those things. Right. And again, that's another great pharmaceutical marketing tour. You're not supposed to feel it. Yes, you are. That's part of the experience of being human. And you have to, but if we're suppressing that and pushing right. that down and taking pills to, to, to numb ourselves, mm -hmm. not only are we are numbing the bad feelings, the, the, the grief and the loss and the sadness and all that, mm -hmm. but you're, you're, you're cutting yourself off from the beauty of life, the joy, mm -hmm. the, the happiness, the things that make you smile because you're just, you're, right. you're numbed out. You are numbed out, absolutely. And you're numb anyway from the grief process. Yeah. So to add to that, I don't think is very healthy or beneficial for anyone involved. Mm. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a quick uh, station announcement. You're listening to uh, this incredible show on KUHSDenver.com. That's KUHSDenver.com. We are broadcasting live in Denver, Colorado, and broadcasting all across the nation and all across the world. Thank you all for tuning in today to the show. Uh, this show wouldn't be possible without every one of you, and I uh, just want to thank each of you for being here with us today. Um, why is it, uh, Dina, so important for families to grieve together, to grieve in community, to, you know, whether it's families or friends or others, or, you know, when they, who have gone through similar or the same experience? Do you, do you think it's an important thing for families to do? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of times so many family members can be in denial. They don't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to deal with it and to grieve and to, you know, cry together, laugh together, share stories, um, you know, just get it out there. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes we turn to different substances to help us through the grief. You know, we turn to alcohol or we might turn to, you know, the other medications out there to, to mask the pain, but that's not a healthy way to grieve. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have to deal with it at some point, mm -hmm. um, whether that's at the moment or 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. I'm a firm believer that if you don't deal with it, it's going to catch up to you at some point. Mm -hmm and you're gonna have to deal with it. Um, I think for me, like I said, friends and family were huge. Mm -hmm. um, we could just need to come together more mm -hmm. and be there. What, you know, and it, it's the littlest things that um, friends would just text me, hey, on Jeff's birthday, I'm you know, thinking of you and him and you know, missing him. Well, that just warmed my heart. Mm -hmm. For as painful as it was, I want people to remember him and be able to talk about them, and that's part of this foundation, is so our children won't be forgotten. It doesn't matter how old they are. Mm -hmm. um, because as a parent, you don't want your child to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I think it, it is a community th effort. It's a, a family effort. It's a friend's effort. And um, I always say that Jeff truly knew what he was doing when he picked his friends because they have been so helpful mm -hmm. and they're like family. He mm -hmm. just did a wonderful job to leave me the friends that he left me and I'm very blessed that they still include me in their life. <laughs> so that's a great healing process right there. Absolutely. We, you know, I think one of the most important elements and missing elements in any kind of healing is a sense of community. Uh, we yes. heal in community. We do. And it is in, the, in those times of need. Mm -hmm. and, and it's connecting to the heart, connecting to other people's hearts. It's not, it's not being on your phone. It's right. not sending text, you know, your little Facebook posts or anything like that. It's actually heart-to-heart -heart connection, right. communication, being there, holding somebody's hand, crying with them, grieving right. with them. I mean, there is a process of grieving. Absolutely. You know? And uh, I think it's, uh, um, and I could be saying that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I think before she passed, she had a whole grieving thing that was necessary, that there was different stages, right. uh, that there's a stage of denial. Mm -hmm. You don't want to believe it. You don't want to think it's, it's happening. Mm -hmm. Then there's a stage of, sh you know, of, uh, of anger. Mm -hmm. uh, you're angry about it. And, and you're in shock. In total yeah. shock about yep. it. Absolutely. And then you have to go through that, and then it's the, the bargaining stage. You know, and you're in, you're, well, if I do this, something will, you know, I can, I can, I'll manage, I'll, I'll bargain with God, I'll bargain with, you know, who can do these things, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have this depression stage, mm -hmm. and that depression stage is part of that grieving stage. Right. And a lot of times people in grief get stuck there. Right. Um, because it's, it's it, you're, symbolically, you're moving from one stage of life, you, you know, to a different stage of life. Mm -hmm. and, it is a psychological and emotional process. But mm -hmm. when we medicate it, we don't get to the next part, which right. is acceptance. Right. right. Acceptance of it. Right. And sometimes we can go in circles. You, know, we Absolutely. Go, we can, you can feel all of those in one day. Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, it's a year or two down the road and you revert, revert back to, I still feel like it's not real. <clears throat> so, you know, you do go back and forth and there's no set pattern. There's no one, two, three, four that you're going to get through it. It just is all over the board. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, uh, you know, how can people, you know, and I think this is when I was uh, learning about all these other people's stories about what they were going through, and uh, there was a, a sense of shame that mm -hmm. was connected to families who uh, suddenly find a family member who is an addict all of a sudden, and it, it, it catches them off guard. Right. Um, you know, how, how can families work through that kind of shame and, and what are some things that they might be able to do to overcome that? Because it's necessary. You have to get past that in order to help the addict. Right. It is, it is um, necessary. And mm -hmm. I think radio stations like this, getting it out there, because we have such a stigma around addiction um, that it's not the old stigma that is in our brains anymore. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. Um, it's professionals like you listed all those all those people. You know, you you could go anywhere and you think you're talking to a professional and they probably are addicted and you don't even know it. Yeah. Um, so we need to get past the stigma that we have. We need to get past the fear. We need to get past the oh people are going to look down on me for mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And um, these are good kids. These are good people coming from good families with good jobs that. Um, 
like you said, it's just not our street person. Mm -mm. And we have an old stigma that we need to change because it's it's everyone and mm -hmm. it's everywhere. Well, it does. And it's, you know, when you realize that it could be your next door neighbor, it could be yeah. uh, this your son, it could be the, his son, it could be her son, Absolutely. it could be her daughter, it could right. be his daughter, it could be right. my daughter. It's that prevalent. It is. And, and it can happen just like that. It and, is. Um, and so we have to approach being addicted is you're, you're, you're being enslaved to something. It right. changes. It's a brain injury. And if we treat it as that, mm -hmm. we'll have more empathy for the people who are going through that rather than standing aloof and like, oh, you're, you know, what shame. How could that right. ever happen? And you look down upon that. And it's right. this programming that we have bought into or got programmed into us that we need to unravel because it's keeping us separated from the people who need our help. Exactly. We have families out there that are in denial. They're that, you know, shame-based mentality is our family's perfect. You put on this facade. We can't put do that. We can't put that facade on. You know, somebody in your family, I don't care if it's your own child, a parent, a sibling, a cousin, we need to reach out and help them. We mm -hmm. need to pull together and help them and, and not worry about that, oh, we're going to be shamed as a family. Mm -hmm. We need to put that aside and not worry about that. Oh, I absolutely agree. And, you know, with uh, if we can set aside those uh, ideas that we have and, and really be able to just see that underneath that is a person who's really hurting. Because mm -hmm. truly there's a, there's a pain underneath the pain. And if we can get an understanding of that, we can approach this problem a whole lot differently than saying that there's something wrong with them, right. which just adds to their shame. And they start believing, well, there is something, I'm, uh, you know, and so it just spirals downward. Right. And then they have the relapses, mm -hmm. which is so high, it's a, over 100%, you're 100 relapse for people with opioid abuse right. in, in just a traditional rehab program that you're setting them up to fail. Right. And they're setting them up to fail and you're not helping them to, to really stand up. And so, but it takes people wanting who really care mm -hmm. to really grasp this, to really do this. Right. How can people, which leads to my next one, how can people get involved with the family without feeling any of the shame about the circumstance? And these are the people outside of that. It's a good question. And I, I think about that all the time. I don't have all the answers. I wish I did. That's a million dollar question. <laughs> I, but, I guess uh, so. <laughs> but um, I think once again, not have that shame, do what you can. Mm -hmm. I mean, it may take, if they just get out of rehab, it may take a family member being with that person mm -hmm. nonstop. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's accountability. Um, you know, we're, we're so worried about our privacy and stuff. Go through their things. Make sure that mm -hmm. it's so easy to get that. Make sure that they don't have it on them. You know, mm -hmm. if they're living in your home, do a do a check of their items. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there. I don't know. There's so many different things. I think. The biggest thing is um, go to the addict and, and tell them, I, I understand. You're not, you know, we don't look down on you. We're here to help you. Mm -hmm. Open up to us. And, and they need to open up, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I, mm -hmm. think, I think it's a whole, there's, it's so complicated. Yeah. But I think that the person who's addicted and the people around them, they all need to work together and not against each other. Mm -hmm. And so many times that is the case the person that was addicted, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, everybody wants to believe that, and then later on you find that they weren't. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's responsibility on everybody's part. 
Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, it <laughs> totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It is a responsibility on everybody's part. Mm -hmm. You know, you, uh, you want to be able to come from a, a place of non-judgment. Right. Uh, in order to you know to approach the person who's suffering, right. and it's also upon them to to do their part as well. Right. You know, and mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's going out that extra mile and helping them and, and picking them up from work and, and right. taking them to work and you know getting them into uh, to go to you know to the the doctors and the counselors and making right. sure they're they're being they're, they're doing all the steps mm -hmm. properly and really putting that emphasis on connection right. into connecting with them because right. that's really going to ultimately hopefully save uh, the people that we can save in this crisis right. by pulling them out right. by giving them some love that love and support and you know help them find a job uh, mm -hmm. you know help them do those kind of things um, enabling is not a good thing mm -hmm. so I think families need to learn how to not enable um, I think that would be huge for success rate mm -hmm. How do, how do families enable? Um, oh, gosh, I guess there's just so many ways. Denial, they don't want to believe that there's a strong possibility. Like you said earlier, there's probably a 100% relapse rate, mm -hmm. especially for the opioid e epidemic. Um, 28 days just isn't enough. No. So, you know, they're going to find it, and they're, they're very clever, and they're going to get it however they can, and it's so easy to get. You can make one phone call, meet you at the end of the driveway, and you have it in your hand. Yeah. It's that easy. Um, wow. I think, you know, not to enable, you need to um, make them accountable. Yeah. You know, you're going to get up, and you're going to go look for a job. You're going to contribute. Um, you mm. know, you're going to have to pay rent mm -hmm. or you know, contribute a little bit, not have everything handed to them. Mm -hmm. um, we need to have some elders, mm -hmm. elders in the community that yeah. really start standing up, you know, you know elder males and females right. who can really, you know, in, in to help to mature these people into a place so that they can look at and idolize someone who that they can put to, right. to see in themselves. I can be like that as well. Absolutely. You know, I can do that as well. If, mm -hmm. and, and this person's paying enough time and yeah. attention to me you know, right. I, I owe it to them to, to, to get my life back in order. Right, exactly. So, I agree. Um, what do people need to understand about a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister who is witnessing this happening to their child and the helplessness they feel? What can they do to help and support the parent who is experiencing this crisis, this opioid crisis firsthand? That's hard, too. <laughs> Good questions. These are excellent questions. Um, I think the thing is to reach out to any resource you know mm -hmm. and ask for help, um, you know, whether it's your neighbor or a family member, church. I mean, there's, there's resources out there. Um, just do the best you can to try to get, ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what to do. If, if we were writing a job resume, we would reach out to people and say, I've never written a job resume before. How mm -hmm. do I do this? Right. We go online and look. Um, today we have everything at our fingertips, basically, and Google almost anything. But I, I think people, we don't know who to ask for help. Mm -hmm. um, and people often, oh, if you need help, you're going to ask. Well, no, not everybody knows how to reach out and ask for help. Mm -hmm. So I think... I would ba rather be wrong and save somebody's life, or I, mm -hmm. I don't mean to offend anybody or insult anyone, but to say, 
hey, look, I see you're struggling. What can I do to help? Mm -hmm. You know, yes, if you have an answer, please offend me. If it means saving my child's life, I'm not offended at all. Mm -hmm. Just kind of be more forthright and, you know, mm -hmm. get out there and ask, what can I do to help you? Or this is what I think we need to do. Because yeah. not everybody has the... Uh, has a solution. No. And it's when you're caught in it, you, it's, there's no solution. You don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. It's like you're in a deep hole and you try digging yourself out and you keep falling back down so you don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. You've got to have someone to throw a rope. Absolutely. You've got to throw that rope into that hole. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, and I think it takes on, on other people that understand that uh, it, it could be you. Absolutely. It could be you. Yes. This is this addiction is indiscriminate, mm -hmm. and it just takes a, 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 a sore back or a pain that that you could be, you know. They had uh, I've heard people who've uh, had their molars taken out, mm -hmm. and they were given eighty pills of uh, oxycontin right. or Percocet. That's all it takes. Yeah, That's and all only it take, takes. Yeah, takes even thirty pills and you're addicted. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, so yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to go a little bit into the, the pharmaceutical companies. Okay. Uh, we talked. I talked a little bit about that in my, my opening monologue. Who created this epidemic? And they're really not doing enough to stop. Right. They're not doing their part. The crisis continues to affect, and it's growing by the thousands, and it's affecting families all across this country. And it's not a political issue. This is a human issue. Right. Uh, what do you think we can do on the grassroots level? <clears throat> to get our children back, to get them off the drugs, mm -hmm. healthy again. And does this require us to engage more vociferously in the political arena, to engender the political will for our representatives who are watching right now, mm -hmm. to do something about this now? Oh, such good questions. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so complicated. There's, there's so many different avenues, and this is so deep that I've read so many things on it that this epidemic is going to continue for the next 20 years, which means my grandchildren are going to be affected by this. So we have to stop it now or do what we can. I think awareness, education, getting it in the schools. I mean, I think our children are growing up too fast as it is, mm -hmm. but we almost have to start at an elementary level and educate the children and the parents. Saying no just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And if it was that easy, if it was about willpower and just say no, we wouldn't have an epidemic on our hands. Mm -hmm. We really wouldn't. I can't believe that. They expect it to go 20 years yep. and it affect our grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. That's, how, that's how far into this we are. Mm -hmm. And it ex it, like you said earlier, um, it's every age. I mean, you're not, you know, there, there's 10-year-olds that are addicted. There's 80-year-olds that are addicted. Yeah. Um, so I think we need to be more proactive as, as as a human and just, you know, if you're prescribed something, check it out. Don't be so trusting. Mm -hmm. Check it out and say, okay, what are the side effects? Um, do your own due diligence and, you know, the side effects and you know you have more of an addictive personality, ask for something else. Don't even buy it. Mm -hmm. Don't even go to the pharmacist and pay for it. Uh, one, two, five pills just isn't worth it. Mm -mm. It's, it's not, just not worth it's it. It's not worth it. You know, it, it's really not. And I think it, looking at more holistic modalities as well, non-intrusive, mm -hmm. um, non-opioidic, alternative practices, it, they work. 
Uh, and it connects you to something more meaningful, which is part of that hopelessness that a lot of addicts feel is, the, you know, it's a deeper connection to something more meaningful right. and larger. Right. And so a lot of these holistic alternative practices offer that, and those are directions that don't involve any kind of pills. Because right. pill is not going to make you happy. No, it's not. It's not. It's, not. it's you're, you being uh, feeling good about who you are mm -hmm. and learning that you're a miracle in life. And what you, everything happening around you is, mm -hmm. is, is, is a gift. And when every human being can feel that, then, then we're in a great place. Right. And, you know, there are probably some, you know, there's prescriptions out there that people do need mm -hmm. for a short yeah. amount of time. But make sure it's monitored very, very closely. Mm -hmm. And make sure that, like I said, you do your due diligence. Due diligence. Homework, yeah. yes, your homework. <laughs> and find yeah. out, you know, what are some of what are some of the side effects mm -hmm. and and be aware of it be cautious and you know we we i keep saying but we need to get back to it takes a village mm -hmm. because it does it does take it a takes a village it absolutely mm -hmm. does and uh you know and, and trust your gut instinct on those things as well if you don't feel comfortable taking something that's right. only, don't do it right don't do it absolutely and always keep in mind that this is just a temporary solution uh, and it's not permanent mm -hmm. this is not going to be long term where even if you, you know, for those situations where you need a, a prescription might be beneficial right. that it's to get you through to the other side but eventually you want to get off of it. right it's not a lifelong thing right. i mean there are probably some prescriptions you do need to take for life but mm -hmm. and i'm not a doctor we're but neither doctors or doctors right but, but yeah. for the majority of it it should be a short term yeah you know That's it what should I think. be and i think the oxys were meant to be short term but they're so highly highly addictive mm -hmm. that people can take five ten pills and they're addicted it's that easy and that's the sad part it's that easy uh quick uh, station identification uh this is we are broadcasting live here at kuhsdenver.com that's kuhsdenver.com you are watching and listening to the council uh, hearing this incredible conversation that I'm having with Dina Hart, uh, the founder of the uh, Jeffrey R. Hart Foundation. And uh, thank you for tuning in from all over the world. Uh, truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, you know, people who are listening in, how can they, we only have about uh, five minutes left. Okay. Uh, you know, how can people support your foundation? What can they do uh, to reach out? Oh, thank you. Well, we're currently in the fundraising stage, so trying to build it mm -hmm. um, so we can do great work to help people, the community, and even take this nationwide or even international would be great. Um, mm -hmm. I just think um, to get our word out there and help people would be wonderful. Uh, any donations are, are welcome. We're a 501c3 recognized by the IRS, so mm -hmm. we're fully functioning 501c3. Um, or we can go to the uh, Jeffrey R. the Jeffrey Hart Foundation org. Um, you can donate. You can send a check to our PO Box seven four five three five seven Arvada, Colorado eight triple zero six. Any donations? Any ideas? We're we're open for any of it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, so the the website is the is Jeffrey Hart Foundation. Jeffrey Hart Foundation dot org. That's J E F F R E Y H A R T 
F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. And uh, you can also mail uh, any donation uh, to the Jeffrey R. Hart Foundation at P.O. Box 745357, Arvada, Colorado, 80006-5357. Uh, please donate. This is a, um, a major crisis, and we need to all come together. Uh, we do. To be we able to do. help those who can, we can help now, and we can do these things, and uh, we can do it now. So please donate if you find it in your hearts um, um, to support uh, Dina and her work and what she wants to, to make. You know, I think we all have to, on some level, uh, turn our suffering into wisdom, turn our suffering into something good, you right. know, to be in that kind of service. Otherwise, we can get trapped in that. Absolutely. And, and being able to share what you've experienced in... My goodness, in nine years, mm-hmm. um, and the, the journey that you had to go through as a mom, and you have such important information and experience and wisdom to help other mothers and other fathers who are going through this right now, today, that don't have a resource, that don't, ha- don't know where to turn to, that are doing just what you did. Um, you know, barely making it, having, you know, the, the trauma of it, reliving it over and over again, the dissociation that happens with it. Right. They need to, to, to know that there's a home that they can go to, mm-hmm. and they need to know about your work. Thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity to uh, spread this word <laughs> and get this epidemic more awareness, more uh, mm-hmm. education out there. Mm. And the statistics you have are staggering, so it's good to know mm-hmm. that that's the reality of what's happening today. Well, they are staggering. Uh, when I was uh, you know, researching for the show, it, I had no idea mm-hmm. uh, how devastating it was across yeah. this country. Yeah. I had no idea it was this bad. Yeah. Uh, Dina, before we close the show, if there's, um, I, I ask all my guests to okay. come on. <laughs> um, if you could give one piece of advice, mm-hmm. one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, let's help each other. Let's not judge. I mean, we all do, but let's not judge. You don't know what that person is carrying on the inside. Uh, let's reach out. Um, even if it's just a smile to a stranger, that may make that stranger's day. You just never know. Um I think if we truly get back to it, takes a village and do the best we can, share our knowledge, share our love, share our compassion, mm-hmm. that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. It goes a long way. I think so. A little more love, a little more kindness, a little more compassion, a little less judgment, mm-hmm. a little less condemnation, a little less criticism, a little less cruelty. Mm-hmm. Just those little things can make yeah. all the difference. It can. It absolutely mm-hmm. can. You know, go that extra mile. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid to cross the street to help someone. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you so much. Thank you. Uh, wow, folks. Um, what a show. Thank you all for tuning in today. Um, We will be back on in about two weeks. Uh, We'll have Dr. Sarah Larson, who will be joining me again uh, on the show. Um, We're going to have a great uh, conversation about uh, about truth. And uh, I wish all of you a wonderful, wonderful weekend. 
Um, wow, what a show. Um, thank you for tuning in. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering, and may you all be whole. Council is adjourned. God bless. Thank you. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you, folks. Okay, we just got off on the, uh, the one camera, and we're still on the international camera. Please, folks, this is a real serious issue. We need to continue to look at it, to understand it, and to do something about it. Go into your communities, take care of it, and follow your heart. Uh, everybody deserves to live a good life, and uh, we can help those who are in need of our help now. God bless. Tune into the council in two weeks, and uh, we'll see you soon. No, 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 right there. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> oh. Sounds like a title, so we can be up there on the uh, right. You know, the mm -hmm. so.